Hello, my name's Chris Lane. Sorry. <laughs> we always do what a great start. <laughs> and take two. Only one sentence. Hello, my name's Chris Lane. And I'm Claire Cook. And this is the Not Forgotten Podcast. Our special guest today is Ali Williams. Now, I met Ali at a conference in Durham a few weeks ago, and she was giving a, a paper on some of her experiences of planting and pioneering, uh, which was fantastic. And then Ali was kind enough to come along to our Not Forgotten conference to share some of her wisdom there. So welcome, Ali. Thank you. Uh, it's so good to have you with us. And um, I wonder if we could just start by just telling us a bit about yourself, uh, a bit about your story maybe kind of how you came to ministry, whatever you want to tell us really, and uh, we'll see where the conversation goes from there. Absolutely. It is an absolute delight um, to join you both today. Um, oh, where did it begin? Well, I suppose um, I was, I've got pioneering in my blood. Um, I grew up um, going to church, but church for me at the time looked like my dad was a lay clerk at a church in a sort of cathedral setting where the sidesmen still more like morning suits at the same time that my mum was chaplain, ordained and chaplain to the deaf and deaf blind. So you had to see voices. You saw the voices of the deaf choir. You heard them um, in the cathedral and um, they were sent from St. George's Leeds. So I was also under the drum kit um, as a newborn. And all of that was worship. And um, all of that sort of really inspired an outward facing relational model of how we are as disciples and our mandate to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and whose worship is expressed in a relevant way to who they are and in the wholeness of who they are. So um, I absolutely was not interested in being ordained at all. I ran for quite a long time um, in as yeah, opposite direction as I could go. You know, in the psalm talks about, um, where can we go from your presence? If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go to the depths, you're there. And I literally, I mean, I took that to like east to west extremes. I really ran away um, and eventually uh, reached the end of myself. Um, utterly reached the end of myself. And in that moment, um, I just had the most overwhelming knowledge of God's grace for me. And a call that there was a call on my life. So um, I set about looking to be a nun. <laughs> I'm not a nun, um, that didn't work out. Um, and I am, yeah, married, three children, and I've served in all sorts of places. Um, my road to ordination was probably alternative. Um, I was working as a university chaplain, a missional arts pioneer for a cathedral, working on um, the liturgy panel for that building in their reordering process. Reordering a cathedral is a lengthy thing um, and fraught with all sorts of um, hurdles, but I was their sort of creative lead um, and events engagement um, sort of person. And uh, yeah, I eventually, having worked through a number of dioceses, ended up training in Cromner in 2017. And I've been serving my curacy in Durham Diocese, um, which I'm just coming to the end of now. Fantastic. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been up to in in uh, the Durham area and uh, kind of some of the things you've been doing? 
Yeah, um, it's been an absolute joy and a privilege um, and has really gathered some of the, you know, the strands of my previous experience and story um, together into this incredibly exciting new thing. So I'm designated a planting curate um, for this diocese, um, but I've done a planting curacy and a traditional curacy alongside each other. So in the week time, I've been working to revitalize um, a church community and to raise a team to plant into another neighboring sort of village. For a bit of context, their former pit village, ex-mining communities. My planting team from the Sending Church were six men and women in their 70s and 80s, an absolute like people of valor. They are an inspiration to anyone. Um, and yeah, so we've planted a new worshipping community and a community hub and drawn in a number of organisational partnerships um, to really embed us in context. So we've established the first rural CAP centre um, in the country, which is very exciting. Uh, we've you know, done all sorts of food pantry, bits and pieces, holiday hunger clubs um, as a response to need, but also to provide a platform for engagement. So we run an extensive weekly programme, a Paysfield cafe. We've got free washer dryer facilities, um, youth group, Hope Sings Community Choir, all sorts of bits and pieces, as well as three worshiping communities. Um, and I sort of alongside that, um, I was given the opportunity really to carry on translating some of the sort of parachurch creative expression that I was sort of pioneering um, before training um, still in context. So I've done that um, for Durham Cathedral in a number of ways. Um, and you know for deaneries and in other churches um across the diocese so yeah it's been an absolute joy love it um i wonder if we can dig in obviously the the conference was about particularly how what are we learning from estate contexts what are we learning as we plant and pioneer into these kind of communities um is that is that what what kind of things would you bring out that you've been you've been learning you know it sounds amazing the stuff that you've been doing is there is there anything you want to kind of kick us off with of things that have stood out to you over this uh especially these three years um that's that, that god's been doing that you've been that you've been learning yeah i think <clears throat> i might be bold <laughs> to begin um that actually we've got a really unhealthy preoccupation with tradition um and planting within tradition and now it might be because of my like quite bonkersly diverse upbringing in terms of what tradition is and what worship is but probably also partly in that I am probably describe myself as a sort of contemplative charismatic um I am like anti-evangelical utterly creative utterly driven by what God is doing what the spirit is doing in our midst um and encouraging others to engage and really holding space for that encounter um, not crowding it, not moving on to something, not but just holding space for God to do what God does um, in all sorts of ways. So I think some of my principal learnings have ultimately been that it was never about me. As a leader, my role is to raise leaders who will far surpass anything that I've been gifted in, anything that I'm experienced in. And that actually as a church leader, I'm entirely dispensable. I come and go. I'm here for a time. But the people in place, I think um, Will Fulger in his, um, late, in his book talks about um, being anywhere people or somewhere people. 
Mm. And I've worked in contexts, you know, within estates that people are, or even in cathedrals, people are somewhere people. Their identity is so firmly located. Now, I'm an anywhere person. Um, that's part of my calling is to go where I'm next called and sent. So um, that has been a real learning, how I raise somewhere people to really be the church in their place. Um, and what that means for our expressions of worship. Um, so in cathedral settings, that looks like um, as a missional arts pioneer using the art um, and the creative opportunity of the stuff that was already in the building. Um, to enrich the worship that happened already. So that looks like multi-sensory prayer. So when you have, you know, a kaleidoscope type image spinning across the walls of a space and the words of the creation story spoken over the top and you literally see it become formful rather than void and chaos. Um, and looking at what that means, what questions does that prompt in us? Um, and in like context, it looks like beef dips and karaoke after our family carol service um, at the yeah, most recent church plant. So I think our context, therefore, is just so key in terms of how God is um, and who we are. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I love that, Ali. I think, you know, I see some of the same or similar patterns really around um, what we centre um, and I wonder sometimes if we mix Jesus plus something, you know, as the thing that we're centering. Um, I'm really just interested to explore what does it look like when we as a church body, the whole body of Christ, when we are totally committed to centering Jesus and not Jesus plus something. Um, one of the things that struck me just uh, really recently, actually, out of the um, Asprey that encounter with God that people had in Asbury Theological uh, Seminary in America um, and there was a, a young person who was reflecting on it afterwards I think with a, a parent or somebody I'm, I don't remember the details but um, they were just reflecting on you know what's the difference here because we gather to worship regularly um, what's different about this space and the reflection was that often it can feel like church is about Jesus plus something else but in that space it really was just about Jesus and I, we don't do it on purpose do we you know nobody kind of plants a church and thinks how can I shoehorn all of my own stuff in you know alongside Jesus it, I think it happens sort of accidentally um, but it's worth hearing those voices, isn't it? And hearing those stories and taking a step back a little bit to just get a, a perspective and think, huh, what am I centering here alongside Jesus? And um, is that good and right? Is that useful for this community? Or uh, if it's not useful, how willing am I to let go of that stuff and enable you know, the voice of Jesus to come through in this community in a, a different way um, and, and for it not to be less than in any way, you know, like that this is the proper thing and then that's the other thing. There's just lots of things in our language, isn't there, that can um, be uh, interesting to notice. 100%. And I think um, it takes a great deal of humility for us to not make ourselves and our way, our method of expressing the inexpressible, boundless grace and the way in which that is constantly reaching into our world 
and into people and into place, whether they recognize that as of God or not. God is, is still, like he's the constant, Bevins and Schroeder type stuff. He is the constant in our context. And actually our privilege is to notice. So if we're only looking within our sphere of reference, and that's often, um, like our, our tradition is such a heritage and blessing. We stand like very truly on the shoulders of giants in this. But if we truly believe that it is afresh to every generation, then simply taking something that worked somewhere else and transplanting it isn't honouring to either what God is doing that might be totally different. It's not honouring to the people that he's already working in because it ultimately, it gives primacy to the thing that you are putting on, mm. not to the thing that is bubbling. So I think I've very much come to think of pioneering um, and planting actually within sort of two poles. You know, on, on the one hand, you have your outcome. What do you want it to look like? What is it? And that's tied up with all sorts of things in this day of funding and external bodies, isn't it? Like, um, you know, and, and expectations of tradition. So, and it is quantifiable and it's important to be accountable and attend to those things um, as outcomes and targets. But actually, if we truly believe that God is always working to transform and redeem the whole of creation, then we have to expect that God is working in places that church isn't currently. Mm. And that actually that is bubbling up as an eternal wellspring um, in all the places where his beloved creation gathers or is situated. So there's this sort of outcome pole and then this sort of context grassroots, what is God already doing, bubbly pole. And actually our privilege is to work out what the space between them is. Because ultimately the grassroots, if we're not partnering God, then it's our building, it's our kingdom and it's for our glory. Mm. And that's where we get outcome and status driven. It becomes like, how many, who are they? What story do I have to tell? And that is ultimately about validating us and our work. It's not necessarily about giving the full glory to all that God is doing in us and despite of us sometimes. Um, so I suppose, I think it takes a great deal of humility and also courage. You really have to take heart to look outside um, the safety of your tradition. I sometimes think of it um, as, you know, when a conquer to grow into a horse chestnut tree, it's protected when it's on the main tree by this sort of spiky hard shell with a soft inner that really nourishes it. And as it falls away, the shell breaks open and it has to spend some really hard, you know, some hard months just sitting in the dark, in the cold often, depending on the time of year, and just being present to where it's landed before its roots can start to grow. And actually it's God that brings those roots. It's God that brings the growth that will come and flourish and spread millions of conkers over the course of the tree's life. So I suppose like if I was to translate that into my, I suppose my speak, I think of our tradition as an incredibly enriching thing that gives strength to the whole. If we are the whole body of Christ, that means us within our tradition and all the ways in which it's expressed just within a denominational tradition. And it's to everybody else outside as well as then the global universal church of Christ that was and is and is to come that will be. 
So how we remain humble and open and attentive, um, yeah, requires risk and humility, really, in terms of really attending to the spirit rather than the thing, um, yeah, the method, the outcome. Mm. Mm. Ali, can I ask you a question? On, mm. um, I, I work with a lot of kind of um, Church of England ordinance who are going to be three years in one place, three years in another place, and then beyond that, they're not sure. And because I've been, God, God, I guess God for me led me into being a, a somewhere person, even though I'm a very much a what's next person. But I have had to, because of God's calling, express that what's next in one place. But so it, it's sometimes difficult for me to advise people and um, who are just doing three years here, three years there. And um, and even that analogy of the, the conquer, which is beautiful, um, I'd feel like if I was a little, if I was a little conquer, but I've only got three years, I'd be like, I need to crack on with this, you know, and uh, start growing. And um, have you got any kind of ideas for the, the those who are going? I've got three years, and I really want to, I, I really want to do loads of stuff, but I also want to listen. And how do you get that balance in a in a place? Yeah, and that I think is a perpetual question, is it? That is one of the eternal questions, I think. Um, and I think ultimately there is. I have had to learn as a very driven, like explosive catalyst person, um, actually to just tend to the quiet rhythms. And also I could have mapped out a very beautiful path that would have been honoring to God, you know, in terms of how I inhabit myself, how I express it, but it wasn't God's path. I could never have predicted anything of really the sort of scenic route in planting, pioneering, the touchstones along the way that have been so formative to me and also utterly transformative in the community. Um, and I think sometimes the pressure of time frame. I noticed in planting, so I, I was ordained in COVID, and the idea was that I would crack on straight away. We'd establish this working worshiping community and we would get going, especially. And I think that pressure is only ever greater when you're employing staff as part of an STF bid. You've got, you know, your money will run out. It is time limited. And so you have to be sustainable within a certain time frame. I know all those pressures. Um, I balance them. But actually. It's all about God. And I found that. If I, I could very easily have planned a strategy, a time frame, what we would do because it seemed the most obvious thing to do or the easiest thing to do. And actually, for me, you have to start with what God has put in your hand. And that is about my desire and my heartbeat. It's recognizing where my ego is in that desire and heartbeat. And then it's working with what opportunity God opens. Um, and I think ultimately I could, yeah, I could not have predicted the last four years, let alone the last six, the last 10. Absolutely no way. And it wouldn't, I mean, it would have been nice if I'd have written my own story, but it wouldn't have been anywhere near the privilege that it has been. So, and that's in, you know, the privilege of the challenges that, you know, you grow and push through as well as all the incredible graces and joys that you experience. So I think 
I would just encourage people like when you are present, it doesn't mean you don't hold a long view. Before I began training, I, I, um, I was meant to go a year earlier and I, I was expecting my third child. Well, he was born in September. It was not the time to be moving 360 miles across the country to begin and, you know, but in that moment, I was, I, I remember I was like, I have quite a psalmic relationship with God. It requires like a lot of frank exchanges of views in which I inevitably then be like, I'm such an idiot. I'm so sorry. You are God. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to do, yeah, as you say, God, um, or as you wish. So in that moment, I remember vividly saying, well, what are you doing? Where am I going? Like this, if this is of you, then what on earth is going on? Like you need to make it clear. And in that moment, just had a, Ali, can you see where your feet are now? And I was like, oh, yeah. It's like, well then bloom where you're planted. For the time that you are there, bloom where you are planted. And I think, yeah, that has been such a helpful, I've come back to that time and time again, in times where I felt in like an absolute desert where there is no life, and in times where I'm like, I can't possibly strategize all the life. Like, how on earth are we meant to draw this into sustainability when it's just multiplying, like constantly, I can't keep track of what's going on. And in both of those places, I just feel, just tend, tend to where you are and be rooted where you are. It doesn't mean that you don't have a long view, but ultimately, if you're actually really committed to what God is doing now, in your time frame, then actually all sorts of stuff grows that you could never have. I could do it in my own strength, of course I could. I, you know, we could have formulated an amazing program and probably nobody would have come or it would have fizzled out. Things would have fizzled because they weren't the right things for now. Mm -hmm. um, so our task, like if we've got this huge banqueting table of option and opportunity, what you choose to begin your meal with, or, you know, what comes is an important thing, isn't it? It's the discerning between and through things, I think. Mm. There's, there's definitely something, isn't there, about, um, like you, Ali, um, I've, I'm ordained as a pioneer. I've gone through that sort of being in different places for a short period of time um, and, and really having to wrestle with this. And I think one of the things that I've learned through this is, just the reminder that, as you said before, the, the, the church isn't mine. And in the one sense, um, that's a real relief. Like, I don't have to build the church because <laughs> Jesus has promised that he'll do that, hasn't he? You know, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail. So mm -hmm. on, on the one hand, like in terms of pressure to perform, I'm off the hook. This is all right. Um, and yet... Also, we live in a, a place at a time when things like funding matters and, you know, that, that's a real factor, isn't it? And um, and I think for me, one of the things that was really helpful about that was that it definitely made the sense of raising up other leaders more prominent, more urgent, which meant that rather than setting up lots of things that I could do and then trying to find people to fulfil those roles um, my approach became uh much more around um 
trusting that what God is doing, he will provide for. So beginning there and thinking, okay, God, I don't really know where to begin here. I've got lots of ideas of what we could do. Um, But where is your provision? And provision for me looks like two things. Um, It looks like that there's maybe some money to do something or at least some money to begin didn't have to have everything at the you know there's a sense of trust isn't there upon our faith but but there's there's a resource of finances if finances are needed um but there's also resources of people um in that area who say we see that there's a need here or we would love to do this how do we make that happen and and for me those two things have been really important around um beginning as we mean to go on of raising up leaders bring in sustainability but but not just because we want sustainability but because we want to see what God's doing and God's at work what is what's Jesus what's the Holy Spirit already beginning to build where's the provision for that and then my job is kind of like almost like just project manager it's basically saying you can do this well done keep going you might want to think about these practical aspects you know how are we going to safeguard this well where are we focused on Jesus here you know how do we just not just make this a social action project but what is there of the kingdom of God about this that is pointing people to Jesus and and not just by osmosis but deliberately purposefully explicitly you know being being honest about who we are as Christians um all along the way 100 percent and I think um, we are really poor. Maybe it comes back to the sort of tradition thing, what we and the outcome that we feel, um, you know, the thing that we make it, what it looks like as a as a finished product or what, you know, is happening um, in part. But when when we opened the Little House of Hope, we were really, really clear. We asked three questions of people at consultation. We asked, what are your hopes and dreams for Thornley? That wasn't about, you know, their their heyday where times were golden and there was work and everyone since has taken things from them and it's just you know they've been there for as long as the funding's last and then they've gone mm-hmm. and they've come to do to not do with what what are your hopes and dreams for this place this community the people here the second thing that we asked was what do you want us to do what can we do for you we are a church But these are the opportunities. Do you want stuff for kids and families? Do you want somewhere to gather that you don't have to pay sole use for? Do you need provision? Do you need support in, you know, what can we do here for you? And then the most important question that really ties into what you've just shared is, what do you want to give? What do you offer in? Because you have automatic belonging and your volunteer teams. I didn't start anything that I ran even the worshiping communities, I didn't begin. I wouldn't begin anything until we had people there that I would alongside to do themselves. And that doesn't mean that I didn't step in and we weren't, you know, we had very clear accountability structures and we were very strategic in how we sort of discreetly structured things. But that was so important because it created instant relevance and, um, and relationship that was mutual. And it wasn't, I think sometimes when we look to collaborate, and I think particularly within partnerships, we look to instrumentalize our relationship, don't we? We have a very, um, yeah, it's part of our worldview is just to look at something and think, what can we get from it? 
And actually those questions posture us differently because kingdom collaboration creates choice, not codependency. It doesn't exploit a power dynamic and have one more powerful and one lesser. It is always aiming to release and equip others um, to be more, to take their full stature um, and to grow. So I absolutely, like my heart rings 100% um, with, if we're not asking, how do we know what people want and how do they know that ultimately we are in serving because we talk a lot in the language of we're there to serve. And then we're quite pre prescriptive and limited in what we're willing to serve in or what that looks like. And actually it was such a privilege. It was only from that, that the community choir that grew into choir church, that small hopefuls, parent and toddler, toddlers that grew into a worshiping community. Like it was only through asking and recognizing the touch points or the, the places where what their hopes and dreams are. So this is all bound in our vision, our, you know, our theology of why um, and who we are doing it with. Um, yeah, it's only at the points of intersection, really, where you end up with what are their hopes and dreams? Where do they touch on ours? What do they want? What's in our heart to offer? And what do they want to give? It's where those three things intersect, that actually the community is reforged and born. Um, so, yeah, I think we need to, it's part of our humility, I think, um, is asking, remembering to ask <laughs> what people um, want and need, because we, we can meet need. We're called to meet need, but we're not called to only do that. We're called to be the kingdom of God and to bring other people into the kingdom. And that means that discipleship happens way before conversion, way before. Mm. Do you want to, um, I'd love to hear a couple of stories. You've kind of just briefly mentioned the stuff with toddlers, the choir church. Can you tell us a little bit more? Give us a picture of what, what, what you did, what you were seeing. Yeah, I mean, it was such a privilege and there were so many people. I think so many people who just wove their story in um, into sort of rediscovering not only their community, like their neighbours, their friends, or people who live in the same streets, or the, you know, we're still in like numbered housing almost, where you have sort of, you know, parallel streets. Um, but actually, I think to sort of draw together the privilege of what it was to lead in those places. Um, I had to ask different questions of people because I think calling is a different thing to capability and role. So for me, I mean, practically, I needed a treasurer who was good and godly and was gonna like help us steward well. We had eight grand a year for three years. That was our entire church budget. Okay, so that just about covered the rent of our building and was meant to um, go towards or certainly do the majority of our, you know, heating, electricity, Wi-Fi. Hilarious. And um, even before a cost of living crisis, I would say that I would ask aspiration at best. However, we needed somebody good and experienced in this role. Now, the person that we have is a gift, like 100%. He is a beautiful and very skilled treasurer with the heart of like the kingdom 
um, and all its riches. But he didn't want to do the bureaucracy. He didn't want that. That wasn't the call. His call, the thing that was on his heart, was to speak to the people who are not of a fixed abode or to the food bank community who used to come to pantry. That was his heart. So my question wasn't, I want to make, I need somebody to do this functional role. It was, God has called you and given you a heart for something really precious. How can we release you to do that? Now, yeah, that was a cost at first in terms of working out how else we could manage, you know, and have very clear accounting um, structures and bits and pieces. But actually it was so important that we attend to that above the role and function that we had made him occupy or thought him into occupy. Um, so that's like one is like a nugget, like begin with calling, not capability, because God provided the right person to take on the finance. Like God's good like that. Um, and I think in terms of story, we had our, our, worship, our worship space was designed to really attend to like a whole person. Um, because I think often in churches, particularly, we make our worship and the expression of our worship cognitive and verbal. And actually, God is so much beyond all of that, it's so much more. So I've been on a real journey um, with that personally. I'm um, driven um, utterly by reflection and creativity. I never miss an opportunity to overthink things in as many media as possible, whether that's dancing or drawing my prayers, dancing the Bible reading, like whatever that is, um, I can't help myself. I'm sort of like compelled into sort of an alternative expression that sometimes is spoken word, but more often than not, um, it is the stuff of, um, is it Psalm yeah, 90, which talks about each day pour, pouring forth its knowledge to another. They have neither speech nor language, and yet their sound goes to the ends of the earth and it's become a tabernacle for the sun. Like, that's incredible. Um, so to give of their people's whole self and to make our worship space a place where our story is recognised and sort of within God's story, we recognise our story, our lived reality and experience and also our future within that of God's enormous story of salvation, was that we asked people to bring um, objects, things, um, which spoke about either God's character or about parts of their journey and story. And so we had everything from light bulbs to Rubik's cubes, to bits of sea glass, to old Davy lamps, to screwdrivers. Like we had all sorts of bits and pieces to pictures that, um, our youth group created that spoke about their experience of God or a particular aspect of his nature and character as they have known it. And it became a sort of a living testimony space. And there was one um, lady who was one of the first ones to come to the building when it was open. There was a huge amount of superstition. We were going to be a pole dancing club, a mosque. We were going to be all sorts of bits <laughs> and pieces. Um, and she came. Now, this lady is an absolutely beautiful woman. She was um, from an infamous local family who were the club singers. And on the circuit, they did every um, circuit going. She'd had a terrible accident about 15 years earlier and had lost the sight totally in one eye. She was well into her 80s. 
And before she walked through our door one morning on both sticks, she had not left her house for seven weeks and had lost all community. Her family came, you know, to visit loads. She was not without of company, but she'd lost her community. And she came in and she went straight to the space and instantly started telling me about what that reminded her of. And it was three artists' mannequins. And she instantly told me of the time that she lost her sight and she was convinced that she'd had um, a person on either side of her helping her to the ambulance. And she, there'd only been one, there had been her husband. But she'd, she was convinced that there was another that she lent on on the other side. And it was just my, I feel emotional just thinking about it, overwhelming privilege for her to begin to retell her story of something that was so traumatic. But in retelling, she, she said to me, do you know, more and more, as I say, I think that that was God. Mm. That's so beautiful, and, isn't it? Yeah. And, and um, you know, uh, one of the things that Chris and I love to just explore, part of our, our sort of values at Emmanuel is about, uh, as well as being Christ-centred in all that we do, but uh, about being hope-filled. Um, it's, it's really easy, isn't it, I think, to, to be pessimistic, um, but actually that the, um, to, to focus ourselves, to be hope-filled, um, means that we hear those stories, uh, uh, you know, stories of people encountering Jesus in different ways, stories of creativity and worship and, and so on, that um, I think that it plants that seed of hope back in not just that person but as you say as we tell the stories as we hear the stories and um, hope bubbles up doesn't it grows again in the church and I think I wonder if that comes from um this uh, the um like a, a real confidence in the gospel that you know when Jesus says he's going to do something he will do it we can trust him <laughs> you know um we don't have to fill in for him we don't have to kind of uh, help him out even like he, he doesn't really need us to build his church but by his grace and in for some wonderful reason he invites us to um to join in and and we get this front row seat don't we when we um when we sit with people and we open up this these kind of spaces for people to just come and worship or and begin to put their trust in God as well that this isn't something we do to people or for people even it's what we do with one another and um I love that story you've just shared there of you know this lady and and that sense of two people being with her and and um as she's telling that story her faith grows and so does the faith and the confidence of the people around us doesn't it and I think that's the power of story isn't it that's the real uh, power in telling stories of what God has done what God is doing where God's at work and um, those are the things that build the faith and build uh builds the church up actually as well and um you know I think that that that's like we love it. We love that, don't we? We love to hear the stories, um, and and not just the stories of when things are going really well, but also in the dark struggles. You know, God's faithfulness, God's goodness to us, and just being able to be honest about about all of that stuff. 
you know, and, and all of the different ways that we encounter God in each other and with each other. It's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if we take seriously and with its full weight, Holy Saturday and where Jesus went, if we, if we believe that, you know, Lazarus was raised from the pit, Jesus was in the pit, then there is nowhere that he has not been and will not go to continue to be with and in all that was created through him. Mm-hmm. There is nowhere that Jesus cannot be. And for me, I've had like personally times when even my husband has said to me, Ali, we're drowning, we're sinking. And I've said, we're not, and we will not because in a storm or a shipwreck, there is always something that floats. I just have to hold on and get to it. And sometimes that was other people. When I was singing Faithful One with tears streaming through gritted teeth, barely able to choke out the words, it was other people who held that hope for me in those really darkest times. And we just trust that if God is who he says he is, if Jesus really is that, then there is nothing beyond nothing outside where God can be and will go so that yeah it's like the constant isn't it there is always more and God always is so even in our own pits in the encounter you know the stories that we hear in which our heart is broken and shattered for the suffering and for the circumstances or the experience of other people finding with them where God is like the bit that floats in that wreck like it's the thing that ultimately carries us through and enables us to lift our head again and the wave might crash over the top of us but we're not going under like we won't drown thank you Ali yeah there's a a kind of like a defiance in that we we were just talking with, with someone else earlier and just that kind of sense of of hope as a defiant act um, and the telling of the stories of, of saying, you know, in the face of all this, do, will, do we still find joy and we still find that sense of community and laughter together? And um, and I think in those toughest times, you often discover, you often kind of just discover joy that you didn't know would be there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it is a defiant act in the yeah. same way that, you know, if we say this is not God's best for anybody, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. not his preferred future, and this is not in line with his promise. So what are we going to do to change it? And I know that's my instant. I'm like, this is not all right. We are yeah. going to like, I am going to rant against these unjust structures that falsely limit God's people and all people. Um, but yeah, it's a defiant hope is a defiant, gritty thing. I think sometimes we make it a floaty thing. We make it something that's rainbow and sparkly. And actually it is like grit. It is the thing that creates the pearl. Like the hope is the thing that creates that environment for something beautiful to come out of absolute dross. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Ali. Well, I think we're like, I mean, we we could just stay in chat all day, but I think we probably ought to... uh, um, you know sort of think about wrapping up really but um 
I just want to say thank you for coming and sharing for your, you know, with your honesty of your experiences and uh, all that you've learned. That's been really rich time of, of learning together. And um, yeah, it's exciting to see where, what God will do next. Hey. Definitely. It is such a privilege. Yeah. Bloom where you planted. That's what I'll keep taking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Love that. Sometimes that's a desert and a dry stone wall, but mm. bloom you can. So Amen. 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 <laughs> Thank you, Ali. Thank you.